0: I'm going to just uh, introduce Sam to you. Um, I asked him this morning how long we'd known each other, and you said a bit over 20 years. I think it's longer. It is longer. I think it must be nearer 25, 28, something like that. Uh,
1: So... uh, (laughs) I was sitting there thinking, I was like, yeah, I, I told a fib this morning. It's definitely over 25 years.
0: Yeah, I had hair. And, and yours was dark. Well, your hair
1: was down to there, and my yeah. hair was similarly down to there. Yours yeah. was curly, mine was long.
0: Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Bad that's look true. for both of us. Uh, so just a quick, very quick resume of your life. Uh, why did we know each other 25 <laughs> plus years ago? It's because resume of my <laughs> life well, it starts in Derby. Um,
1: 25 years ago, uh, I was 18, and uh, was just involved with a, a small group of people who had a, a heart for this area. And particularly, my heart began to be for younger people. And so I came to meet a wise sage in the ministry of youth work in the area, Donald, and Graham from Duke Street. And we began to to pray together on a regular basis for God to do something amongst the young people of Sutton.
0: And so you worked here with young people for a time. Then what was the next stage of your ministry? Yeah, so from that, we
1: um, saw a whole bunch of young people come to faith and were part of a movement across um, Sutton of about 14 youth workers ended up being employed, doing schools work, space uh, grew at that time, which is a project going into schools, and, uh, and we saw a whole bunch of young people kind of regularly coming together for worship, which was amazing. Uh, but we found our hearts begin to break for some of those young people that found church more difficult, more challenging to engage with at that time, engaging with young people up in Falcon Lodge, and also had a few young people who lived with uh, my wife and I um, from time to time who had more challenging home backgrounds, and we really felt God breaking our hearts to uh, make him known. Um, To in context where people had much more barriers in the way of coming to know Jesus. And so we gave up our job working at the church and we moved down into King Standing uh, to begin to build community in that context which developed into a charity called Urban Devotion Birmingham, which is still going, uh, which is great. How long did you lead Urban Devotion for? Um, So I led Urban Devotion for about 14 years uh, from the start. And then uh, about five years ago, uh, my son was six months old when we moved into the community, and he went through all the school system, and we became governors, chairs of governors, all that type of stuff. Saw quite a lot of change in the community, and uh, when he got to 13, um, I was talking to him about him coming to adolescence and saying that it was time for me to step back from being more directive in his life to be more supportive, and as I was praying for that, I felt the father say it's time also to release urban devotion into its adolescence, and you need to step back from directing it to a supporting role. So that was it, really, so gave that up and didn't know what the next thing was.
0: Uh, Just before we come back to that sec, you're married to Hannah, who lots of folks know, and you have three lads.
1: Yeah, three lads. Uh, Noah is now 18, has just started university, so we're going through this whole kind of grieving, almost like the loss of a season of life. And then Jude, my middle son, is GCSEs, and Levi is without a care in the world at, at 13.
0: Great. So five years ago, you, you uh, passed, over, passed on urban devotion. Yeah. What, what's the last five years been? Yeah, so um, giving up, really hadn't got the foggiest
1: what the next step was, but found that's almost been part of God's preparation for us for the next season. And then quite quickly, actually, God brought um, working with open doors onto the horizon. It's too long a story to go into all the detail of it all, um, but really felt like God sovereignly opened that door. And uh, for the last four and a half years, I've been working with Christians around the world who live in context of extreme persecution uh, for their faith, which has been an incredible um, humbling and honouring privilege, really, and had a profound impact on my life and my view of the Christian life. And I'm very, very grateful uh, for every person I've got to meet in that time.
0: Brilliant. We're very grateful for you coming to speak. Open Doors is the organisation. We've shown lots of videos. You were going to come and preach just before the pandemic, And just as the pandemic hit, so this has been postponed for a couple of years. um, But we've used quite a number of your videos uh, over the time, and we were able to to do the Christmas Day offering uh, for that work. So it's it's a work that we partner with. It's also great to have that friendship, not just with me, but I know many in the church as well. So thank you for coming and sharing this. And I will come back. If we can just, Sorry, just stick that slide on. Just stick me on. I will come back in, in, in 25, 30 minutes. So, If you want to text in a question, it is the normal number. That number will be again at the end. If you compose the text, we'll put the number up and we'll answer some of them. Okay.
1: Thanks, Donald. I'm not offended by any questions, so feel free to ask anything, um, including what team I support. Um, I don't know how your week has gone this week or how you've prepared uh, to come out to church this week, Uh, but part of my experience this week uh, was being in a minibus, and we got to a checkpoint, and at that checkpoint, um, armed terrorists ran out from the sidelines with AK-47s and headgear on, and got us (coughs) out of the minibus and onto the floor, uh, put hoods over our heads, bound hands behind our back end shoved us back on the minibus, drove around. Uh, I managed to get my hands out of the binding on the minibus, but that's another story. Uh, And then we were kind of uh, roughed up a little bit, shoved into these um, cattle pens, and uh, had sensory deprivation, different kinds of senses, uh, been stimulated, put into kind of stress positions. And then at one point was taken out and plonked on this stool, hood taken off and interrogated uh, by a guy. Now, this wasn't a real situation. This was all um, preparation uh, for hostile environment situations. But it made me think quite a bit. Um, and I don't know about your journey to church um, today, but one of the activities we did was kind of a reconnaissance and counter-reconnaissance. So how do you kind of follow people, but also how do you avoid being followed? So I don't know if your journey to church um, tonight has been one of, you know, counter-reconnaissance, that you've been aware Uh, that you're watched, you're aware that you're coming to a very, you know, special environment tonight, which isn't that you're hearing me speak, it's that you are meeting as the family of God, as the people of God, and I don't know whether the value of that caused you to take a risk, to step out of your home tonight, and maybe it's taken you, what would have taken you five minutes in the car, has taken you about two hours, because you were really so keen to gather here, Um, that you were willing to throw off all caution, but you zigzagged your way, you went down kind of roads, checking that nobody was following you. You kind of ducked under hedges. Certain parts you walked slowly, other parts you darted. You know, maybe you had, you know, one of these uh, hidden somewhere. You can get it out now you're here. It's safe to have a Bible in the the house of God. But I don't know if that was your experience, whether that sounds odd. What's really interesting to think about is for many, many Christians around the world, to go to church... Is at that level. There's a nation in the world which I can't give you the details of, but there are there are 15 Christians in that country, and their experience of gathering is never like this. There aren't this many Christians in that whole country. Their experience is that at 11:30 at night. They sneak out of their houses, and in threes and fours they meet in one another's houses, and one of them will have dug up a Bible on the way, and they will have the Bible and they will pray together, and they will encourage each other. And then after midnight, you know, they'll sneak out again and make their way back to their homes. That's their experience of church. And there's a couple of things that are challenging about that. One is that being your lived experience. But also it's quite challenging to think, would we go to that level of effort to meet together as the people of God? And if the answer is possibly not, then that's quite a provoking question, isn't it? Well, what is our value or what it is to be the people of God? In the book of Hebrews, Hebrews writes them, you know, that they would not give up the habit of meeting together. And it's interesting, in the midst of lockdown and COVID and all of that, all of the restrictions, all of the limitations, is that they have put barriers in the way, even the fact that you're all you know, staring back at me with mask on. They've put barriers in the way. Yes, put yours on over there, I see that mask. (laughs) They've put barriers between us, haven't they, in our relationships. And it's easy then that we begin to live with those barriers. Zabi on the screen is an Afghan Christian. And she knows very much what it is to have to do church undercover. Two years ago, her dad uh, was arrested, he was tortured, and then he was executed in Afghanistan. Why? Because he is a follower of Jesus, and because he wouldn't renounce Jesus. A few months later, her brother went missing, and she's never heard from her brother since. Now, just contextualize that in your life for a minute, because it's so easy. We think about these ideas as out there, oh, that was a really moving, heart-rending message, but Put yourself in that situation. Think about your family relatives. Think about them suddenly disappearing. You get home tonight, you don't know where they are. You never hear from them ever again. I met a lady called Hannah from uh, North Korea a couple of years ago. And uh, I won't tell you her whole story. That will have to be for another day. But one of the stories was when she escaped, uh, her and her husband, sorry, were released from a North Korean prison camp. And they had their 13-year-old son and their 16-year-old daughter. And Hannah and her daughter, Grace, they escaped to China because they knew that their life was permanently under threat in North Korea. And her husband, who'd been badly beaten from two years in prison, so uh, emaciated and disfigured um, because of stress positions, and he and their 13-year-old son were going to travel on a few weeks later, and they were going to meet up together in China. A month passed, two months passed, three months passed, four months passed. And her husband and her son never appeared in North Korea, in China. When I met her, it was 20 years on from when she'd seen her 13-year-old son. And when she told the story and she wept, I wept, because at that time my middle son was 13, and it was so real, so profoundly real. The idea of not seeing your 13-year-old child for 20 years and not knowing whether they're alive or not. Last, uh, just over a week, I had the privilege of of meeting some Christians from Afghanistan that are now living here in this country, and hearing from a guy whose whose dad had been killed, hearing from another guy whose whose wife, because um, she loved to sing and was heard singing, she was butchered. Talking to another young girl who, back in July, was in Kabul, and she was a primary school teacher and loved teaching. And she's then had to flee the country and is now living here, learning the language. Actually, she speaks incredible English far better than my Farsi. But as they taught and they talked about brothers that were back in Afghanistan and the raw emotion and the fear and the anxiety for their brothers, I felt overwhelmed. Because though they were talking about their blood brothers, I felt challenged that these also are my brothers through the blood of Christ. If I genuinely believe what the Bible says, and I'm not sure we are meant to be picky and choosy about the Bible, that's dangerous ground. If we believe what the Bible says, then we are blood brothers and sisters and family in Christ. And should not my heart be moved in the same way for my family as theirs was? And there are Afghans living here in Birmingham that we have an incredible opportunity to reach out to and to love and to serve as the church. And here in these stories, few of us are going to face martyrdom. That is an unlikely reality or extreme persecution like Zabi and her family. But we all do face moments of decision, moments of choice as to whether we are going to follow Jesus or we're going to follow the patterns of this world moments maybe where we're put under pressure, maybe work environments where the, the, the status quo or the pressure around us is to conform to a particular way of behaving. And that challenges is exactly the same challenge that our brothers and sisters face around the world, though in a more extreme setting. And in this life, if we call ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus, we will face tests. Peter, writing to uh, Christians dispersed across Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, He writes to them in in 1 Peter 4 and says, Do not be surprised when you face tests and trials and tribulations for yourself, for your faith. But rejoice that you are sharing in the suffering of Christ. What he's saying is, guys, it's, it's the abnormal life to not face tests and tribulations for your faith. It's the normal life to face tests and tribulations. And as Jesus said, if they persecute me, they will persecute you. And Paul writes to Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life will face persecution. Why is that? It's because the message of the cross that we've shared communion over, the message of the gospel, is in opposition to the status quo of the world. We may not face that violent extremism that some of our brothers and sisters face, but each day we make those kind of micro decisions as to are we going to put Jesus first? Are we going to love those around us with the generosity and the selflessness and the costly love with which Jesus loves us? And actually, as we read some of the scriptures earlier, one of the profoundly challenging things about the early church um, to the occupying authorities was was the way in which they patiently endured suffering and still loved generously. Wasn't that they retaliated or claimed their rights or they said, I'm entitled to this? It was the fact that they patiently endured ungodly and unrighteous injustice. But because they were living for a greater reality, a bigger reality, a more powerful reality. And that's what spoke out so powerfully. And it's loyalty, it's allegiance, it's faithfulness to Jesus that still costs Christians today. And at Open Doors, we estimate there's about 360 million Christians around the world today living in contexts of, of extreme levels of persecution. Just to put that in context for you, that's one in seven Christians globally. So imagine you guys on the far side, sorry to kind of mark you out, but imagine all of your friends and family sitting in that quadrant over there. Imagine them coming here today and when you shared a drink on, on the way in or you, you know, go to Quinta Lounge or wherever Kath said you go afterwards, um, you know, Deb, sorry, said you go there, and you're talking about this week and you're reflecting and saying, yeah, I've had a, I've had a really tough week. Um, you know, I got sacked at work because I was found to have a Bible in my bag. Or I was, you know, kidnapped this week and I was interrogated about my belief in Jesus. Or maybe somebody isn't here who was here last week, and you're all asking, where are they? I talked with a church leader in Nigeria who, for 23 weeks back to back, had had members of his congregation killed by Islamic extremists. 23 weeks. Can you imagine turning up as a pastor? and being told that another member of your congregation has been executed that week because of their faith in Jesus. And I'm not trying to be sensationalist, I'm just actually telling you a very, very sanitized version of the reality of life that many Christians live in. Just wanna play you just a short video that will give you a bit of an overview of the context now for Christians around the world. And what we do each year is we produce what's called the World Watch List, which looks at the 50 places in the world that are most challenging for Christians. And this short video will just give you an overview of those top 10. So just watch this.
2: There are countries where Christians live in fear, where churches are bombed and houses burned, where following Jesus means sacrificing jobs, security, family, There are countries where you must keep your faith secret or it might get you killed. These are the countries of the Open Doors World Watch list. And here are the 10 countries where following Jesus costs the most. Number 10, India. Many extremists claim that to be Indian is to be Hindu. They want an India without religious minorities and they are using violence to achieve it. Number nine, Iran. Iranian Christians must meet secretly. Being discovered could mean long sentences in appalling prisons. Number eight, Pakistan. Christians in Pakistan are considered second-class citizens. Innocent believers are falsely accused of blasphemy. Thousands of women are victims of kidnap and forced conversion. Number seven, Nigeria. Nigeria is the country where Christians face the most outright violence. Many Christians have been killed or driven from their homes. Number six, Eritrea. More than 1,000 Christians are imprisoned for their faith in Eritrea. Some pastors have been locked up for over a decade without charge. Number five, Yemen. Yemeni culture is tribal, those who leave the tribal faith could be banished or even killed. Number four, Libya. In this lawless land, Libyan Christians have to keep their faith secret or risk punishment, arrest or death. Number three, Somalia. Islamist extremists consider Somali Christians high value targets. the tiny population of only a few hundred secret believers keep out of sight. Number two, North Korea. There are around 400,000 Christians in North Korea. All of them must hide their faith. Discovery means exile, execution, or being worked to death in horrific labor camps. Number one, Afghanistan. The Taliban takeover means that Afghanistan is the new number one, the most dangerous place in the world to be a Christian. Many Christians have become refugees. Those who remain must keep their faith utterly secret. There are countries where Christians live in fear, but fear can lead to courage and courage leads to hope. At least 360 million Christians around the world experience high levels of persecution and discrimination, but they have not given up. And for over 65 years, Open Doors has stood with them. Where Christians are persecuted, our global underground networks supply smuggled Bibles and Christian books, spiritual care, emergency food and aid, training and legal advice. Where Christians are free, we work with local churches to raise our voices in prayer, to speak truth to those in power, to strengthen our persecuted family around the world. Because there are countries where Christians have to stay silent, and there are countries where Christians can make a noise. But we are all connected. We are all family, and together we can help one another to follow Jesus, no matter the cost.
1: like to get a a copy of the world watch list there'll be a um, QR code you can scan later and you can um, order a copy and really encourage you to get that it's give you a very broad awareness of the realities around the world but also it gives you something to pray for specifically for those countries and actually if you could even think about one in seven Christians face persecution maybe one in seven days a week you could just give a little bit of time just to pray for one of the top 50 over 50 weeks and then have two weeks off or two weeks to pray for whoever you want to Um, The picture of persecution globally is at the highest it's been in the last 30 years of of doing the research. And those of you who know your church history, you'll know that there's been various moments of persecution throughout church history. But such is the size of the world and actually the size of the church that the experience of persecution is higher than it's ever been before. For those of you who have engaged with the World Watch before, you'll notice that um, Afghanistan is at number one. And for the last 20 years, North Korea has been number one. And actually persecution in North Korea this year has got even worse. But North Korea, um, but Afghanistan, it's got even worse over over this last year, which is why Afghanistan is now at number one. And the World Watch list uncovers the place where faith costs the most. And Peter was writing his letter to people in a similar situation in the first century. And that was made even more vivid in the the years after Peter's letter uh, with Nero's persecution um, of the Christians after the burning of Rome. And uh, into this cultural moment, Peter writes these words of deep encouragement in chapter 1. He says, In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So a few things just want us to focus on from that. And the first thing is that testing is real, but it's also temporary. Testing is real, but it's temporary. Peter writes in in, there, he says, "Um, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He's giving them a context of saying, guys, this is the experience that you're in, but it is temporary, it isn't gonna go on forever. And that would have been of huge encouragement um, to those that Peter was writing to, just reminding them of the bigger story, also pointing their eyes towards eternity, that even if you are suffering now, there is something that is beyond this. A couple of years ago when I was in Nigeria, and uh, I was in the northeast of the country and we got taken into this um, village. And there's this wall on the way into the village which had two very bold statements. The first statement is, um, Man United are the best. And I don't think any of us would uh, disagree with that statement. The second, the second statement is, was, Jesus is Lord. And hopefully none of us would disagree with that statement either. But what was really profound is that that statement was written on this wall of a village that had been desecrated many, many times by Boko Haram. And I I sat that morning uh, with a church setting similar to this, but there was no roof on the building because the church had been destroyed by Boko Haram. And I listened to numbers of the congregation sharing their stories of the suffering that they'd endured at the hands of Boko Haram. Uh, People showed me bullet wounds on their body, Uh, People wept as they shared about uh, loved ones um, that had been brutalized. I won't go into the details of what happened. And I don't know what you do in that situation, but I was just profoundly emotionally exhausted by being present to people, which you have to be, because this is real life. And yet thinking, what on earth do I do with that? And I talked to the pastor afterwards, and I said to him, I said, "How how do you live in a situation where this is your experience, but also... Your ongoing expectation. And he put his hand on, on my shoulder with, a, with a, a, a broad Nigerian grin. And he said, Sam, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And for those of you who know your Bibles well, you'll know that that's a line that Paul writes from prison to the Philippian community To live is Christ, to die is gain. And what Paul was expressing to the Philippian community, and what this pastor was expressing to me, is that testing is real but it's also temporary. And there is something that is eternal, that is of greater value than this current moment that we live in. Those are profound and challenging words. And Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice. What do we greatly rejoice? What's the bit before this? It says, in this you rejoice. What do we rejoice And We rejoice that according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In that they rejoice, even though... They are being tested, even though they are facing trials and tribulations, that their hope is anchored in something more. And it's so challenging when you meet people that their vision of Jesus is of greater worth to them than their vision of uh, their future or the vision of um, security or their vision of materialism or wealth. So, so challenging. And if we lose sight of what is ahead, if we lose sight of eternity, we tend to live for the here and now and we obsess about securing ourselves in the things that Jesus says are temporary. Jesus says, do not worry about tomorrow. How much time do I spend worrying about tomorrow? Testing is real but temporary. Second thing, testing refines faith. Faith. trials and suffering they prove our faith they show it's authentic that it's genuine and the word picture here that paul is uh, so that peter is using is of this you know refinery where you know gold has been melted down and the impurities have been burned away and, and the, the gold is gleaming so that you know the gold the um, uh, the the smith's face has been reflected in the brilliance of the gold And it's a picture which almost as our lives are refined by whatever trials, testings, and tribulations we go through, that the things that contaminate our heart, the things that claim and and just conflict for our affection, that those things are purged away. And what happens is that the purity of faith is refined so that the Master's face is reflected through our purified lives, that as people look at us, they see Jesus. That was very much the testimony of the early church, that when people beheld people suffering unjustly, but whose hearts were rich in generosity and forgiveness, they were like, there is something going on in you that is different to what we know. And I don't know about you, but in the midst of COVID, so many people have faced fra- the frailty of life, the fragility of life, and the fear Of not being able to control what might go on. And in that environment is not the glory of our faith in Jesus so brilliantly shining. That actually we don't fear death. We don't fear death. Because to live is Christ, but to die is gain. And I don't know about you, but I find my affection so easily complicated. That my faith says this is what I value but my time and my bank balance says, no, actually, this is what you value. And so sometimes tests refine our faith. They highlight to us what our values really are, what our beliefs are as expressed through our behaviors. A couple of years ago, I was... I don't know if I've turned this off, but it's not clicking on now. A couple of years ago I was um, in, uh, in Iraq and in the Nineveh Plains, and uh, the church in Iraq over the last 10 years has been reduced from, it was about two and a half million, um, to about less than 200,000 now, that's the level of decimation through um, particularly ISIS uh, and Al-Qaeda. And, uh, and there's it, a guy uh, called Rebia who was a, a doctor in Iraq and as well as being a doctor, he had some property, he had some businesses, he had nice cars, he had a nice lifestyle. Um, But in a few hours everything changed. He had to leave his home, leave all of his possessions, take his wife and his children and run for their lives, losing everything that they'd invested in and given to. Persecution turned Rebia's life upside down, but also he speaks about how it deepened and refined his faith. He says this, Before they took away everything, I was a Christian only by name, but now my faith is alive. Let's read that again. Before they took away everything, I was a Christian only by name, but now my faith is alive. I now know the love of God more than ever before. Remiel went on to say one of the greatest challenges that we face as Christians is that we can be more in love with life than with Jesus, and it makes us unwilling to die for him. It's challenging. When I was in Iraq, I, I met a, a pastor, and I said to him, what, what, has, what have you learned in the midst of persecution? And he paused for a minute, and he said, he said I've learned to carry my cross daily. He said, before persecution, I used to pick up my cross, and I used to put it down, I used to pick it up, and I used to put it down. But he said, in the midst of persecution, I've had to live daily clinging to the cross in order that I know the strength of Christ. And I found that so, so provoking. And I thought, yeah, I think I can be like that. I can pick up the cross when I really need it and quite easily put it down. And he said, the thing you notice is that the more you carry your cross, the lighter it becomes. He says, it's only when you put it down and have to pick it up again, it feels heavy. So, testing refines our faith. It shows us whose we really are. Testing means encountering more of Jesus. Suffering does not represent the absence of God, but it's an opportunity for us to encounter the presence of God. Suffering does not represent the absence of God, but it's the opportunity for us to encounter the presence of Jesus, the suffering servant. And suffering generally leads to two heart responses. One is that we humble ourselves before God because we realize how desperately we need God. The other is that we harden our hearts towards God because we're angry that God hasn't done something that we feel he should have done. And how we respond generally tells us about how we see God. The question is, how do we see God? If we see God as primarily a contributor to the comfort of our lives, then we're likely to find our response is with disappointment with God. But if we see God hanging on the cross, suffering in our place, then we're likely to find our response is consolation in God. We know that he he knows our sufferings and therefore he's able to support us in the midst of whatever it is we're going through. If we let God work in our hearts, God is at work in the midst of the pain, shaping us, forming us, forging us. And it can be easy to say that, but we've all... I'm sure, known experiences of pain and suffering. And in all of them, there is an opportunity for, to be vulnerable and to allow God to draw close. A, a number of years ago, my uh, dad went out running and had cardiopulmonary heart failure completely out of the blue. And uh, for me, it was a loss of, you know, best friends, my spiritual father as well as my natural father. And I felt bereft. I suddenly felt more vulnerable in the world and actually... I felt my boys were more vulnerable because they didn't have the godly example of, of their grandpa. And yet in the midst of that time as I just you know, wept through to worship, and that was really it, I just broke in the presence of God, I, was like, oh, I either hardened myself to God, or I just embraced Him in the midst of this, and as I softened my heart in that moment, it didn't stop it being grieving and costly but it also transformed it into a holy moment of real encounter with God. And if there's one thing that is repeatedly coming back to me from meeting Christians around the world, Christians that have endured horrific suffering, persecution, torture, is that when they are open to God in the midst of their circumstance, he transforms it. It's a bit like David says in Psalm 23, you know, Um, In the presence of my enemies, you lay a banqueting table before me. What he's saying is, it doesn't matter what I face. Because God has the ability to transform every environment, every circumstance, every moment. And through it, to make um, known his manifold goodness and kindness and mercy. And as we live out our faith in the reality of whatever testing, tribulation, trial and challenge we face... The gospel is gloriously demonstrated through our lives to those around us. And when they go through any kinds of suffering, they remember the strength that they've seen in us and in our embracing of the cross in the midst of our circumstance. Our persecuted family in the New Testament and our persecuted family around the world remind us of this reality, that testing is an opportunity to encounter more of Jesus. And perhaps today, perhaps right now, you need to be reminded of this. Reminded of how God is present, not absent. Reminded that you're precious, that you're valuable to God. Go and read Romans 8 again. Paul writing again in the context of persecution. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not persecution, not tribulation. Nothing can separate us. That is his testimony. That in the midst of testing, we encounter more of Jesus. He is abundantly above and beyond anything that comes against us. Jesus is with us. He is by our side. He is present. And this is something that Bay from North Korea experiences daily. She says, whenever I open my eyes in the morning, I feel the presence of the Father. And every morning in the village that she's forced to, to live in, Bay spends the day working in the fields. She has a daily quota to meet. And Bay was sentenced to a lifetime of backbreaking labor. Her crime was that she owned a Bible. And like everyone else in her village, Bay is starving. The authorities have given them just enough to stay alive. But that isn't Bay's real work. Her real work begins at nighttime under the cover of darkness. She finishes work. And sticking to the shadow, she steals back through the village in the forest. And when she finds a tree with gnarled roots and scrapes away a thin layer of dirt, there she finds the Bible that she's buried there a few nights before. Pulling out her Bible, she tucks it under her arm, and she goes on a zigzaggy way to join with housemates who are at home waiting. They've drawn the curtains. They've blacked out the windows. And they sit tightly in a circle around a the candle. Then Bae starts to read the word of God. That's Bae's real work. And that's the North Korean underground church. More than 400,000 Christians are part of that underground church in North Korea. Where is Jesus? He's right there in the middle, in the testing, in the fire with Christians in North Korea. And Bae was able to get this letter out um, to an open doors worker in China. And she says, whenever I open my eyes in the morning, I feel the presence of our Father. From the perspective of other people, our life of suffering must seem like a cursed life. However, this suffering is a blessing from our Father who allowed it in our life because it is a shortcut to the Father. It's a shortcut to the Father. He knows our suffering and listens to our prayers. We thank our Father who has done such great things to prepare life for us. And the thing I give thanks for the most is that Father God uses me to work as his servant. I desire to dedicate my life until death to glorify him. It goes on to say, Brother, I have one further request. Please send our gratitude and appreciation to those who sent support materials to us. I bow to them with a thankful heart. And I know many of you here support people like Bay through your support for Open Doors. Testing means encountering more of Jesus. That isn't my story, this is the story of people from around the world. And few of us will face extreme persecution, but the tests we face are very real, choices, decisions, where we'll be forced to choose between Jesus and the world, forced to choose between loving Jesus or this life. And I wanna invite us today to again surrender our lives to Jesus, just like Bay and others are doing. Make him Lord of all. Maybe you've never made that choice, so maybe tonight is a chance to do that. One of the things for me I find most profound is that it's like the beauty and the worth of Jesus is proclaimed so powerfully to us from Christians that the only reason they follow Jesus is because he's worth it. There is no material gain for them to follow Jesus. In fact, there's material suffering. But such is the value of who Jesus is. Such is the glory of the gospel. A bit like those early disciples that Jesus presents in the cost and they're like, ah, flipping heck, that is a cost. But they're saying, but only you have the words of eternal life. They've been ruined for what is temporary and they've been set apart for what is eternal. And I think our brothers and sisters around the world, as much as we can stand with them and we can give and we can advocate and we can pray, actually what it is that we receive through that partnership, through that being one body, one family, is so much more profound because Jesus is again presented to us daily through their lives, through their testimony. And it causes us to say, Lord, refine me, refine my affections. Have your way in me. I surrender and I submit again to you. If you would like to strengthen your persecuted family, if you're not already doing that, then I'd love you to uh, invite you to stand in the gap to give, to act, to pray. That's what partnership looks like. And uh, we'll send you information to encourage you to pray, share stories of answered prayers, things that God is doing. God is doing phenomenal things around the world at the same time as persecution is, as was the book of Acts. Phenomenal persecution, phenomenal and extravagant moves of God. And if you have a phone, if you take it out and scan that QR code, it'll take you to a page where you can Um, sign up to give to Act to Pray to get information, to request uh, a World Watch list that you can then use um, to ongoingly pray. So thank you so much um, for having me. Thank you so much for your uh, offering at Christmas uh, which has been passed on and I really hope that what I've shared hasn't left you um, unmoved. I hope it's moved you. I hope it hasn't left you feeling condemned but I hope it has really just engaged your hearts again with the beauty of Jesus um, who is worth it all. Thank you, Donald.
0: Brilliant. Thank you. We'll put that code back on again at the end. Uh, If we can pop the other slide on. Stay with us, Sam, because I'm going to ask you some questions. Uh, If you want a a text in a question, we'll do what we can very quickly uh, to answer one or two of those. Uh, We've had one or two come in. Uh, If you have that seat over there, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to Just respond in a moment or two. Um, So, if you've got a question, uh, I've got a couple that are in already, but if you've got one and you want to send it in now, if you do that in the next couple of minutes. Question How do you, I know we've talked about this when we've walked together um, recently, how do you deal with part of your life is sitting and listening and meeting these folks and then you come back into the UK and the Mm. trivia of Mm. Western life, how do you manage that in yourself? I think at times
1: it can be quite challenging. There was was one time where I was um, at a church service in Iraq on Sunday morning, and then with the time zone and the traveling back, got back to Heathrow, jumped on a train, arrived back in Birmingham just in time to go to church, and what was really interesting, one of the songs that we'd sung uh, in Iraq that morning We then sang at church. And just seeing the way that the value of that song in those two contexts, it was real and genuine in both settings. But you realized almost just the reality of which people experienced some of what that song was talking about, which was was something about, you know, even through the fires, you know, we will seek you, we'll trust you, we'll love you. And knowing people who are singing that going through the fires and in another context, it being something where it's, you know, there are trials and tribulations and testings we face, but quite different at the same time. But I think ultimately, when you come to a church on a Sunday, you meet one another, don't you? We've all had different weeks, but in all of our different weeks, there have been ways in which Jesus has been encountered through us. When you share your stories, you encounter Jesus through one another. And I think it's the same on the global level, that actually we encounter Jesus in different ways. Um, through Christians who are facing persecution, but also they also encounter Jesus through us and the stories that we share are the ways that Jesus is present. So it's a very equalising reality, actually, Um, and humbling at the same time, if that answers your question enough.
0: Yeah, yeah. Do you feel guilty coming away and leaving them? Um, No, and I don't know whether I should. (laughs) Um,
1: I think I feel challenged, definitely, in terms of the life that I live and, and what is what is justified, what is okay. Particularly coming back from Lebanon um, a few years ago at the time where a lot of the Syrian refugees were in Lebanon and meeting families of five and six, um, you know, the same as my family. And yet they were living uh, with, um, you know, advertising hoardings, the kind of big plastic canvases, that essentially those big plastic canvases were being used as as the uh, tents that they were living in, and there was snow on the ground outside, it was minus 20. And, uh, and that was the condition, and the struggle really of thinking, well, if my brother or my sister or my mum was living in a tent like that, I'd be like, no, 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 you must come and live in my house, because even if they all lived in one room, we've still got enough room to house them all, and so I think again, asking God, Lord, help me to live in a way that is, you know, in parity with my family around the world, so it's definitely... Um, challenging. I don't think I feel guilty because I'm not sure that's a good motivation, but I think it's a really helpful litmus test and check over whether my values are more driven by my culture or by my Christ.
0: It takes, the phone is going mad at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> so just on that one, um, we may get these slightly out of order, we may not be able to sure. answer everyone. How do we sit down and enjoy a movie etc. when our brothers and sisters are suffering?
1: yeah uh, that's a really good question um i mean i think we have to understand what god is like um and it's not wrong to um enjoy life i think it's just making sure that um i suppose we are being generous in the way that we live life as well um and otherwise you can rob yourself and feel like i can't enjoy anything and I've definitely gone through that kind of wrestle but it's easy that we can develop a poverty spirit on the other side of that which is therefore I you know, can't ever enjoy anything because it's wrong and I've definitely been through that. But I think as I've kind of wrestled through that I think you have to live in the context that you're in but just make sure that you're not compromising because of that context and um, and also you can't make your reality somebody else's reality and you can't make their reality your reality really. And, and I think also it's easy that we develop a bit of a charitable mindset, um, which isn't helpful because the charitable mindset, it distances us from people because we either put people on a podium and look up to them, you know, um, which isn't very helpful or we kind of you know, pity people, uh, which isn't helpful. And actually, you know, we need to kind of partner with people, which is sharing life with them. And, uh, and, and our view of wealth and poverty is not necessarily others. So in some of the villages in Nigeria, for instance, there's a richness of, in life, even in Iraq, meeting people who'd lost everything, but they were so rich and abundant in joy, almost they were richer in faith, because they'd lost some of the things of this world. And so I think it's being mindful that wealth and poverty are not always issues of financial well-being. They're to do with your enjoyment of life and and enjoyment of community and enjoyment of people and what other things we're investing in. I am not the oracle, by the way, of all things on this. These are just some of my personal experiences.
0: I'm really grateful. We've got a lot of questions, so we're going to get them all done. But just uh, Because on the same kind of level, should we seek after and pray for suffering in our lives? I'm not sure I'd pray for
1: suffering, I think my prayer would be, you know, Lord, don't allow anything to be in my life that robs me of the opportunity to know you fully and abundantly, and the Lord, I think, will use any number of circumstances um, around that. I don't think seeking suffering is particularly the right thing, Um, and I think asceticism can become actually an idol in itself when we begin to find our righteousness and our identity in what we are suffering and um, and that's of no glory or value to God I think the, the, the prayer is Lord you know more of you and less of me and sometimes when we pray that there can be a cutting away a trimming a refining of some of those things in our lives that are obstructions to the grace of God um, working in our lives but I don't think the goal is suffering and um, the goal is is Christ-likeness
0: Similar line, what is the best way for us to keep living in the refinement that you were talking about? If here in the West, trials are refining us, how do we keep in that place of being refined? I think that um,
1: what the pastor in Iraq said was really, really profound Um, in each day, living at the cross each day, carrying the cross. And I think from meeting him, I've sought to much more intentionally do that because I think when you see life through the lens of the cross, when you see people through the lens of the cross, it all looks very, very different. Um, And so I think that's the key thing. If we can live each day at the cross saying, Lord Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. I think that refinement is almost just an ongoing part of life. And that refinement can be a person at work who is really irritating to us, um, but they're also the grace of God to us to develop Patience, you know, development of things like patience, it doesn't come through some kind of karmic position. Patience comes when you are facing situations that drive you crazy and you choose to put on Christ-likeness.
0: Okay, brilliant. Do any other churches do this? Because it's madness that we just put you on the spot and ask you questions. You're very brave to do this. I've done it once before. (laughs) Thank you, well done. I know you well enough to know you'd cope. Uh, These are a few questions really about open doors. It might be that you just point people in the direction for very quick answers. Is Open Doors facing financial challenges?
1: What has been just incredibly humbling is over the last two years with with COVID is that when it all kicked off and everyone was kind of, what's this gonna mean? We had made financial kind of planning for a 60%, 40%, 20% reduction in resource because really whatever resource we receive from the UK church in finances, you know, we get as much of that across to um, countries around the world, Christians around the world as possible. So we planned for what that might look like and how we would trim as many of the things as we could trim. So it's a really good exercise in, in stewardship. But what actually happened, we had a lot of people get in contact, a lot of church leaders say, we for the first time have realized something of what it must be like for Christians living in persecuted contexts. The, the lack of freedom, the restriction, the just inability to meet as church um, has made us even more aware. And so actually we saw um, giving go up by about 25% um, over the last two years, which has been incredible. Um, so we've been able to give you know, more money to Christians around the world than, than ever before. So it's been just just an incredible delight and privilege and it's not because anything that we've done strategically that is clever in any way shape or form I think if anything it's just God's um, just compassion for people who are suffering and if there's any encouragement we can take it's hopefully that we are being good stewards of what the Lord has entrusted and, and we've passed that on faithfully um, and that's really I suppose where we endeavor to be we want to be good stewards um, because it's the Lord's um, business, um, and we are therefore very feel very comfortable. So the more you
0: get, the more you can pass on and, yeah. and support. And, and your website, and there's lots of videos that, that talk about how that money is used. Yeah. So very quickly on that, uh, a couple of texts which is really saying uh, one: Do you hear stories of persecutor- persecutors turning to Christ, um, like the centurion uh, and? Uh, can you describe some of the ways in which prayers are answered? My, I mean, is there, can you point people to stuff on your website that would give those kind of answers, or can you give us a, a, a one minute answer? I mean, yes, we do see
1: um, persecutors come to faith. One incredible story um, was in Kazakhstan um, with a guy who was actually part of the KGB, and he was you know, persecuting religious freedom as part of that. Uh, one day, heard a street preacher taking his life in his his own hands, talking about Jesus. And uh, it really kept him awake that night, and about 3.30 in the morning, he couldn't sleep, and he said, God, if you exist in the way that he's talked about today, make yourself known. And he had this wonderful encounter with Jesus, he describes, and he began to then share his faith with others in the KGB. As a result of that, he was fairly badly uh, kind of beaten, tortured, one day, He was um, being tortured and and one of the guards had his boot in his mouth saying this mouth will never speak of Jesus and uh, this guy said you may stop my mouth from speaking but you can never stop reality of what is in my heart and uh, essentially he can't go into all the details but you know got out of prison and then was living in Turkey and one day a couple of years later there was a bang at the door and this guy who'd had his boot in his mouth was standing at the door and he was like oh here we go. And the guy said, "Um, I was the guy with my boot in your mouth, and you only ever spoke kindly, and you spoke of forgiveness, and you spoke of the love of God. In the last four years, my life has fallen apart. My wife has left me. I've lost my job, all these things. And all I've been able to think about those four years was the peace that was in you. Can you tell me more about that peace? And he led him to the Lord. I mean, that's just an incredible story. And we regularly hear stories of some of the closed nations around the earth and how Jesus is just sovereignly revealing himself in dreams. It's absolutely phenomenal.
0: So if folks follow that QR code, will they get sent prayer information and that kind of stuff? Yeah, so on, uh,
1: it basically takes you a page where you can choose your options of what it is you want to register for. If you go onto the website, there's lots of other stories on all the different countries. And there are some of the countries we can't give you lots of detail about because the security risk for Christians or and the church in those nations is, uh, is very, very sensitive. Um, and appreciate that's, you know, people would love to be able to link directly to a Christian in those countries, but to do that would put people's lives at
0: risk that, you know, we're not at liberty to do. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Andrew, would you pop that last QR code back on the screen while we have the, the last question. Uh, how can we grow in our appreciation and commitment to gathering with other Christians and we take it to granted so easily?
1: Um, I think, I mean, for me, personally, I've known about the Persky Church for probably all of my life, and I've known about Open Doors, but I think the, the greater intensity of investment over these last four and a half years has probably been one of the most profoundly refining things in, in, in my life. Um, and so I think part of our desire as Open Doors is to say, look, you know, church in the UK and Ireland will you stand with our brothers and sisters? Because they really need us to stand with them, to, to give, to act, to pray, to stand in the gap. But I think almost in a 49, 51 kind of thing that in the purposes of God, there's, there's possibly even more for us through that partnership because you are presented with people that expose us to the reality of what is going on. And if you read the New Testament, um, Paul is, you know when he writes to um, the Thessalonians, um, and he writes to them and encourages them in their faith, but he also writes to the Corinthian church about the faith of the Macedonian church and the Thessalonian church, and provokes the Corinthians by the example of the Macedonians and their endurance and the persecution. And I think that's part of the reality of the world that we're in, actually, that as we join together as the body of Christ globally, as we participate and partner you know, in the life of the persecuted church, it really helps us um, to not get distracted or to become um, dulled, I suppose, to the reality of what is really at stake. And in 1 Peter um, 5, you know, Peter writes and says um, about the brotherhood of, of the whole family God around the world, they're are equally facing challenges. And it's, it's that sense of, let's not forget, we're part of, of one church, we're part of one family, one body. And actually, as we connect together, you know, the the vision of Jesus becomes even more compelling, even more rich for all of us.
0: Brilliant. Thank you ever so much, Sam.